Now we're in Acts 27 today. If you look in your Bible, or if you look in my Bible, that's where Acts 27 ends. That's where Acts ends. Well, I figure this is uh, almost 50 sermons in, so there's no way you can remember the first couple. So I'm just going to re-loop. We're going to do the whole thing again. Um, and then I don't have to do any sermon prep, and that'll just work real well. How about that? Um, I wouldn't do that to you. Uh, this week we're going to look at a, a shipwreck. I want to ask you a question. I was thinking about it as I looked at the text. Do you believe in God? When I was a kid, I believed in Santa Claus. I believed in the Easter Bunny. And you might say, what's a Jewish kid doing believing in Santa Claus? Don't worry about that. I believed in uh, the Tooth Fairy until the Tooth Fairy got busted. Um, the Tooth Fairy looked a lot like my dad. I believed in a lot of things, and they turned out not to, not to be so true, although I still profess belief in Santa Claus because then you never have to buy gifts from anybody. I just... Do you believe in God, though? I want to talk about the difference between believing in God and believing God. There's a massive difference that has eternal ramifications. And that's what we're going to look at today. You see, there are very few people who will, not, who will say, I don't believe in God. Um, Psalm 14.1 says, takes a, the fool doesn't believe in God. We all know there is a God. The question isn't, do you believe I'm real, God says. It's, do you trust me? Do you believe me? We're going to unpack that as we look at this shipwreck. So Paul's about to set sail for Rome. And it's a rather long text. So we're going to blast an air horn every random number of verses to make sure you're paying attention. Everybody all right with that? Okay, we won't do that. It says, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, we means Luke and Aristarchus, who you'll see in a minute, are sailing with Paul. They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Off the bat, understand it was not normal for a prisoner to sail with companions. Uh, prisoners sailed alone. So how Luke and Aristarchus were allowed to go with Paul, we don't know. Uh, but they were in God's sovereign plan, and they had a, uh, a centurion named Julius who would be taking them. Every time you meet a centurion in the Bible, they're kind people. I don't know why. I don't know what you do with that to... Uh, walk closer to God, but it's just an interesting little fact. Every time you see a centurion, they're kind people. They're, they seem to, to be um, caring and, and considerate and compassionate. Just put that in your little theological uh, chew box and pull it out sometime for, uh, I don't know what. These were soldiers. They were, uh, they were leaders of men. Usually about a hundred would fall under their charge. But you'll see them throughout, throughout the Gospels. They, they interact with Jesus, and they're usually nice people. They, they have a receptivity, um, a softness about them, and I'm sure that's not true for every centurion in the, in the Roman army, but the ones in Scripture. Um, we got one here named Julius, and Julius throws his, uh, his traveling companions on a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail the ports along the coast of Asia. So up there you see a map. We're going to follow Paul on his trip here, all the way up to Rome. So they're about to leave um, you know, the Caesarea area here, and they're going to hop on a coastal vessel. The first ship they're sailing on is a coastal ship. These weren't ships that would go out into the middle of the water because they would get torn apart if, if the winds came up. They were 
They were, you know, like, think of them as ferries that would go from port to port up the coast. And they'd hop on this ferry so that they could come across a seafaring vessel that would then take uh, Paul and the other prisoners with him, with Julius leading them into Rome. So they hop on and they go along the coast and they're accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from, Sepa, from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. You see Sidon up there? So you can follow Paul along here. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. What does that mean? When they got to Sidon, Paul's physically ill. We don't know exactly what's wrong with him, but he has some sort of physical ailment and he needs to be cared for. So Julius lets him leave the ship, which would not be normal. He's a prisoner and the believers in the area care for Paul's needs. After a short time, it says, verse 4, um, and putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. So they're coming out over the end. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So now they've come across a seafaring vessel. And Alexandria is, is down here. It's, it's in Africa. It's in Egypt. And what happened was Rome took most of their wheat from Africa, from Egypt. It was, they would transport it up to Rome to feed the population. So it was very normal that ships would come up from Alexandria, crossing the sea on their way to Rome, and they put Paul and 276 people in total on the ship. That's not a random number. We'll get to that in a bit. So they sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lesia. So now we're down here. So a very uneventful. We're popping up the coast. They, they grab onto a, a seafaring vessel. They come across. The winds are kicking up. It's getting a little more difficult to sail. And they come up to Fair Havens. Now, from September to November was called the dangerous season of sailing in this area. Storms would roll in. Winds would kick up. It wasn't a safe time to sail. And not many people sailed. Well, we're in this difficult sailing season here. And they're banging away, and they make it into Fair Havens. And then Paul says, we, we might have some trouble here. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because the fast. The fast means Yom Kippur. October time frame we're looking at. Uh, the year most people put this in is like A.D. 59. And we know that, that uh, Yom Kippur was October 5th of that year on our calendar. So we're after October 5th. They're in the middle of the dangerous season. After his fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. That is not a prophetic statement of Paul, because people didn't die on the ship. That's uh, spoken from an experienced seafarer who had been shipwrecked numerous times before, as we know from 1 Corinthians. Uh, so Saul, Saul, Paul says this, The centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So they are, lost my pointer, they're going from Fair Havens. And if you look, it's a very short jaunt to Phoenix. All they have to do is hop the coast a little bit. 
Paul's saying, let's not do it. This is not going to go well. They listened to the uh, majority. They listened to the captain of the ship, which makes sense. You know, Paul wasn't a, a sailor. And they get going. And verse 13 says, Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. So, you know, they're like, Paul, you, you don't know what you're talking about. Look, see how well it's going for us? But, soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. So they're here. They're supposed to just do this. A wind whacks them south. And I love this little squiggle. That's the exact path they took. God, God me. They get driven by the wind down into the sea. They're running under the lee of a small island called Caudia. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, which is this area down here, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Now you read that, and you can be kind of indifferent. But imagine, these are experienced seafaring sailors, and a storm freaked them out. So it's not like, you, you ever been whale watching? You know, the, anyone here ever been whale watching? It's horrible, man, that boat... It's like this, and you just want to die. You're like, I can't stay. It's like seven hours of pure safety on a bobbing boat. Well, this is sailing in a hurricane on a 2,000-year-old wooden vessel that is about to tear completely apart, and sailors were getting freaked out. They couldn't see the sky, so they couldn't navigate. These guys were losing their minds. They were adrift in the middle of the sea in the dangerous sailing season. Put yourself in their shoes. What would you do as a, a passenger on that boat? Think about it. First of all, today, assume you're, you're a child of God. You're Christian, right? Put yourself on a boat like that, storm-tossed in the middle of the sea. How are you feeling? Would, would you say you would be uh, comfortably at peace with whatever happens? You know, would you be watching the sailors run crazy and you're like, Oh, praise God for the boat and the storm. It's all going to be okay. Let's be honest. Ah! Right? Now you have to refine my, my place here. So they had been without food a long time. Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you, take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship for this very night. There stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Why did God grant all those who sailed with Paul to be saved? So everybody on the boat, Paul has to get to Rome. Why? Because God said he's going to get to Rome. And God says to Paul, tell him, I've granted all those who are sailing with you to be safe because they're sailing with you. But why does Paul not just save Paul? Why does God not just save Paul? Why not let everybody else die on the boat and just somehow, you know, he, he could pull the, the, the transport, levitate type. There's no, there's no understandable reason other than grace. I mean, maybe he does it for, for the purpose of witnesses, but ultimately, 
It was completely out of their people's control. There was nothing they could do. God just chose in his good purposes to save all of the boat undeserved. You guys catch that? There, there is a parallel there to, to why you have come to believe God. Uh, you didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. God just chose to save you. And then Paul says in verse 25, So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. 276 people in a storm-tossed 2,000-year-old wooden boat in the middle of a hurricane, in the middle of the sea with no way to navigate. And Paul says, hey, you're all going to live. You know, the ship's going to be torn apart. Sorry about that. But not a hair of your head will be harmed. You're all not only going to live, you're going to be absolutely fine. So now you and I would be like, oh, okay, can I have the, the barca? Can, can, can I have the chair to relax while we toss about in the, in the sea? So they're being driven across the Adriatic Sea, and about midnight the sailors suspected they were nearing land. How do you think they suspected that? Yeah, waves crashing on rock. Really a comforting thing in the middle of a storm at sea, right? It's dark, can't see, but you hear something going on. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further, they took a sounding and found 15. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down the anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. I wonder who they prayed to. But they prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered down the ship into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless they stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Sailors are freaking out. Experienced sailors are looking to make a run for it, right? Paul just said, hey, I got news for you. Stay on the boat. You're all going to be fine. They're, they're running for it. These are not, you know, your average, average sailor people. These are people who have been in storms before, and they're freaking out. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day you have continued in suspense and without food. That's a long time to be kicked about the sea. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. That's a promise from God that no sailor would go bald. Bob, if you sailed that ship, the hair on your head, I'm kidding, that is not what that means, is it? <laughs> and when he said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and at the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, the bow, st bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. Why? Because if they escaped, the soldiers would be punished possibly killed for losing their prisoners. The centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks and on pieces of the ship. Listen, this is in the middle of a hurricane. It's not like you've drifted out at Bethany Beach 100 yards and you're going to coast in. It's in the middle of a stinking hurricane. So what happens? And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Standing on the beach, 276 seasick, soaking wet, freaked out human beings, I should say, 275 freaked out, 276 soaking wet human beings who had not been injured in any way, who had made it through a violent 14-day-plus storm at sea. 
What do you do with that? You make a movie out of it, right? It'd be a good movie. You ever see Perfect Storm? Ever, it was a book. You ever read the book? The book was better than the movie. I feel like I'm getting really old when we start doing that. The book was better than the movie. It's a good movie, too. It was, uh, George Clooney is in it. They ripped that sucker off. This, this is the perfect storm. The perfect storm is a true story. But that's what they're going in, right? You know how perfect storm ended? Anybody want to see it or, or read it? Cover your ears real quick. They all die. This one doesn't end the same way. You can make a nice movie with a better ending. They all live. But why did they all live? Clever sea crafts. These were wonderful sailors who could navigate through the waters beautifully, right? No, they were freaking out. Why did they live? Well, verse 25, I think, is a crux to this whole passage. Take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Back to that first question. What's the difference between believing in God and believing God? Do you ever think about that? Believing in God means you know God's real. That's great. I'll throw some, some facts. Some, why can't I speak? I'll throw some facts out for you. Raise your hand if you agree. If you don't, it's going to be really awkward. So just raise your hand anyway, right? Do you believe there's one God? Do you believe Jesus is God in the flesh? Do you believe Jesus uh, lived on this earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and that it's only through him you can be forgiven for your sins? You good with that? Do you believe that he's ascended to the Father's right hand, that he'll come back one day and judge all the earth, that when all people die, they stand before God and face judgment? They're either separated from him by their sin or forgiven by faith in Christ. You good with all that? If you stop there, you're going to hell. Because you believe in God. You believe what he says. You, you affirm it intellectually. See, I think James talked about that. Demons do that, too. You catch that? The devil throw his hand up, too. I'm good. Got it. Affirm it. Believe it. It's true. See, the difference is believing God means trusting him. Mm, that's a difference. It's not really hard to believe in God. It just takes an intellect, and it takes some facts, and it takes some, some credible examination of them. Most people who call themselves Christians stop there. Yeah, I'm good with the facts. I affirm the facts. I got no problem with the facts, so I'm going to heaven. See you there, Jesus. I got a life to live. That's where you get away from me. I never knew you. You, know, you knew about me, but you didn't know me, Jesus might say. So what does it mean to believe? Trust and obey. What does that look like? It looks like verse 25. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. He's not just saying, well, I believe we'll make it. He's saying, I'm going to live like I actually believe I make it. I'm not going to freak out. I'm going to trust that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. So a little awkward question comes about. I thought you were saved by grace through faith and not by works, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So do you have to trust God to be saved? No. But if you're saved, you have to trust God. Do you see the difference there? What does it look like to trust God? You take what he says. And you do it. You believe it. You act on it. It starts with, I believe salvation comes only through Christ. That I need to turn from sin, you know, stop sinning as best I can, and live for his glory, not my own. That's where you start. 
You believe God means what he says and he'll do what he says he will do. Then as we grow in faith, we take what God calls us to do and we do it. So what happens if you know what he calls you to do and you don't want to do it? Mm, you might want to ask yourself what's going on. Am I, am I immature in my faith? That's your best case scenario. Or maybe do I not have a faith? You know? There are way too many people who compartmentalize God and they, they do what they, they do the do's they want to do and they discard the do's they don't want to do. It's not the do's and the don'ts that make you right with God. That's just evidence of you if you're right with God. This is very important to understand. A Christian is a person who believes God. They trust and they obey God. You're not saved by obedience, but if you're saved, you will obey. And as you trust him more, you'll know him better and you'll desire to obey him more fully. Paul's in a storm at sea. How come Paul didn't freak out? Because he trusted God. He trusted him not in the middle of the storm at first, but leading up to the storm, and he was prepared to deal with a storm. Now, anyone here going through a shipwreck, per se? Possibly. You know, we all deal with the shipwrecks of life, the difficulties of life. You can trust God in a shipwreck for the first time, but it's much easier to trust him before you're in the middle of a storm at sea, per se. You guys with me on that? Because then when, when the mountains give way and the earth trembles, you can fear not because you know who God is and you trust that God is who he says he is. Paul didn't freak out because Paul trusted God. So we want patience, right? We want peace, focus, comfort, we, joy. We want all these things. You know how you get them? You don't stop by praying for them. You trust God. You trust God. And as you trust God, then the fruit of the Spirit begins to develop. So the first thing I see is believe. Not believe in, believe. Is everybody good with that? Does that make sense? Speak up now, forever hold your peace. You're fully accountable for it. My hands are clean of your blood, and we can move. I'm kidding. No, move on. What? Paul shared a message with him given to him by God. And Paul lived like he actually believed the message. I think those two work together. We tell people, God loves you, put your trust in God and obey God, but we live the exact opposite way. They look at us and go, you hypocrite. Why, why would I believe what you don't believe? So yeah, there's, there's weight to be carried by the obedience. Um, but I think it's part two here. Stand firm. Paul stood firm, which gave credibility to the fact that he actually trusted God, that he believed the message that he was communicating, right? So the sailors, verse 30 through 32, are freaking out and jumping off the boat. Why didn't Paul? Dude wasn't a sailor. This, imagine you were on a cruise recently, right? What if all the, the, the crew members are like bolting? They're like bolting off the ship. What are you going to be like? Follow the crew members, right? You're going to freak out. Paul doesn't freak out because he believed God and gave credibility to the message he was communicating. That's what we're called to also. We need to hang on God's promises, not allow the circumstances to drive us crazy, but to count on God's promises. What are his promises? Front to back, it's loaded with promises. You understand that? This book is loaded with promises. Why? Because God knows how weak you are, and God loves you far more than you can fathom. He says, hey, let me, let me make you some promises. R.C. Sproul says, 
Promises for tomorrow are anchors for today. I love that. Promises for tomorrow are anchors for today. Hebrews 6.19. It says God's promises are a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Because in this world, you're going to have trouble. So Jesus says, grab an anchor and you're fine. Your boat may rock, but you're going to be okay. How? Because I said you're going to be okay. Well, I'm freaking out. Don't freak out. Trust me. You see where we're going there? The world medicates and distracts and entertains the storms, you know? Woo! The boat's going crazy. Let's all get drunk. We don't know it's going crazy. The Christian stands on the dock and says, it's okay. Remember Jesus got in a boat with some disciples? Storm was raging. What did Jesus say? Stop. And what happened? The storm stopped. Who brought this storm? God. Who was in control of that storm? Do you see God took that ship and smacked it on Malta? They weren't navigating to Malta, were they? How the heck does that bad boy get to Malta? Well, the great navigator took it to Malta. Why did he do it the way he did? I don't know, and I'm glad I wasn't on the boat, but I love that I can read the story. God, God had that ship fully in control the whole, whole way, even doing the little zigzags, right? The whole way he had the ship perfectly under control, and he was taking it to Malta before the foundations of the earth. Paul knew who was driving the ship. Paul knew who could say to the storm, stop and be still. So Paul knew when the storm raged, why it was raging is because God allowed it to rage. And he stood firm on the promises of God. God said, nobody is going to die on this boat. Paul's eyes said, we're all going to die. But Paul stood firm on the promise of God. God said, this boat will make it safely. Or, you will make it safely to shore. The sailors said, no, we won't. We're going to die. Paul said, chill out, guys. I believe God will do what he says he will do. You and I have to believe God, not believe in God, believe God. And then we have to stand firm, and we stand firm on the promises of God. See, if you take this book and you put it away like this, God, please give me strength. Don't, don't assume that God's going to you know, visit you in a, with, an, with an angel bringing a message. John, I appreciate your prayers, and I'll overlook your laziness and apathy. And let me just walk alongside you in a physical form as an angel and hold your hand and encourage you along the way. Oh, quit freaking out. It's going to be okay. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. That's not how God works. He could. He says, come on, guys. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of promises for, as an anchor for your soul. Now, how do they encourage you? How do they help you? Well, you've got to believe them. You've got to trust them. That's hard, isn't it? It's unnatural. It doesn't come to us naturally because we walk in, a sin, in suffering the effects of sin. Ah, that's where faith comes into play. It's believing God will do what he says he will do, even though you can't see. God told Paul, you'll be all right. Paul couldn't see how, but Paul didn't freak out because he believed God, not what he saw. How often does God call us to do things that if we look with our own eyes or examine with our own intellect, we go, well, that's not going to work out so well. Well, maybe God's lying, because that's what happens if he's lying. But if he's not lying, then quit trying to figure it out and trust him. Believe him. Turn to him and be saved is where it starts. Then walk in obedience to the good shepherd. Why does God seem distant? Why does God seem quiet? Why do we struggle with, with the goodness of God? Perhaps we fail to truly believe in the promises of God. Now, it's not perfect trust that saves you. If you can trust at all, it's evidence of salvation. Do you see me there? You're not saved when 
when you no longer doubt. Because let's, let's be honest, does anyone here not doubt any promise of God and walk in perfect obedience besides me? None of us walk in perfect obedience. We all struggle at times with how God could allow this or how God will do that or why God says this and yada, 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 don't we? It's not perfect obedience. But is there a desire to obey? Do you grieve when you disobey? Is there a part of you when presented with a command of God that, that can't just say, screw it, I'm not doing it? You know, I want to do it, but I can't do it. I want to do it, but it's scary to do it. I, wanna, I don't want to do it, so I'm going to justify it numerous ways. But deep down, there's an unease because you know you should be doing it because you know God has called you to it and you want to glorify him. Do you see where I'm going there? It's not perfect obedience that saves you, but it's a growing trust. So how do you do it? How do you believe God? How do you, how do you trust his promises? How do you know that it will be as he says it will be? You look at the evidence. Acts 27, that's not Acts 27. What happened at the end? And it was so, they were all brought safely to land. So 276 on a boat. God goes out on a limb. God says via an angel to Paul, y'all live. God put his reputation on the line, didn't he? What happened if one of them died? What if one jumped off the ship and, and, and drowned? All of a sudden, God's a liar. Now, some guys tried to jump, right? Paul stopped them. Were, were they all cemented to the boat so no one could go? And it was, it was just like fatalistically predetermined that they would all stay on the boat and live because it's what God said and they were just puppets in the hands of an angry God? No. But God put his reputation on the line. Paul, tell them they're all going to live. All 276. And they all lived. You see, God puts himself on the line. He makes promises. And then he shows us they come true. Prophetic texts. The Bible's full of them. There are many that have come to pass just as God says they would come to pass. Look at the Messianic prophecies. And there are prophecies that haven't yet come to pass, but they will. God gives us ample evidence to know that he will do what he says he will do, and he means what he says he means. Proverbs 30, verse 5. It's a great verse. You know it? Every word of God proves. Come on, fill it in. It starts with T, ends with ooh. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. God gave Paul a message to share and put his reputation on the line. God gives us a message to share and puts his reputation on the line. And it always proves true. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Is that true? You and I know it is. We're called to go out and proclaim it. Because one day, just as a ship landed on shore, every person is going to land before God. And when you land before God, you better be prepared for what you're about to say. Because you're all going to be there. You're all going to face a judgment. And there's only one way in, and it's through Christ. It's eternal life before that point for the believer. But think of the prophetic text we have as, as evidence. What's that book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict? Josh McDowell, is that the guy who wrote it? I read that a long time ago. There are really good books out there that, that unpack the biblical evidence for believing in God. It, it is an irrational fool who denies the truth claims of Scripture. Hear me again on that. It's an irrational fool who denies the biblical claims made in Scripture. You tell me, I don't believe in God because the Bible's full of contradictions and error. And you know what? Gag me with a spoon. Give me a stinking example. And you can't. This book is so verifiably true. You and I have evidence 
which demands that we believe that God will always do what he says he will do. So the result of that is simply what we should do is believe God. Not just believe in God, believe God. So what do you do with this? Don't be stressed out when you go on a cruise, right? I don't think that has anything to do with this text, although you shouldn't be stressed out on a cruise. You should probably send me on a cruise so I can show you as an example of how one, how one should cruise. You know, we can send a documentary crew to follow me, and I'll do a Mediterranean cruise. You guys up for that? We're going to have a little box out next week if you all would pack it. Tell your friends about it. What do you do with all this? Believe. If you're not a Christian, if you don't believe God, why? What, what keeps you from believing God? You need more evidence? No. You need more faith. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. It's not a matter of trying harder. It's a matter of, of believing God is who he says he is. So you trust him. Trust him with a little step. Turn to him and be saved. Call him on it. Are you really who you say you are? I really would like to know. But what about if, if you find yourself as someone who just believes in? You don't really believe. Same thing, trust. Go beyond the fact. Take something God calls you to and do it. Not because you want to. Not because it makes sense. Not because it's going to necessarily be fun. But because God is who he says he is. And that's what it demands on our part. Trust. Live for his glory, not your own. But what if you're a Christian? How does this relate to a, a Christian person? Well, I thought about myself. Why not trust more fully? Novel concept. Why not trust more fully? Take an area in your life, if you can find one, that is, where you're not trusting God fully. Somebody laughed there. That was supposed to be funny, right? Thank you, Bob. Or take two or three or 20 or 30 areas where we're not trusting God fully. I was thinking, uh, Randy Alcorn has a book uh, called Time. I, it's called Time, Treasure, and Eternity or something like that. He has another one called The Treasure Principle. It deals with these issues of time, talent, and treasure. We all know in certain areas how God calls us to use our time. You know, the tick, 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 tick time of your day. Your talents, your abilities, your, your physical and emotional things you could do, your treasure. That money God entrusted to you that's not yours, it's his anyway. Right? We all know the basics of how he calls us to use some of those things. Why not just go crazy and trust him on it? I'm thinking about this for myself. Why not, why not put the iPad away for a little bit and, and spend some time in prayer rather than saying, God, I'm too busy to pray? Why, why not uh, prayerfully seek opportunities to build relationships with people? Why not, uh, you know, why not take, take that um, bank statement that I look at and, you know, in my bank statement doesn't work so well all the time, but in my bank statement I find trust and hope and security. You know, give me a fat bank statement and I'll be like, oh, I, I have peace and comfort and security. That works for me. Um, why not throw that bad boy to the side and, and sit before God and say, you know what? For me, God, if you want all that, if that's an idol to me, take it. I'm going to try to just follow you. Where, where is it in your life? We all have different idols in our lives. Where, it is it, where is it in your life that you're failing to trust God the way you know you should be trusting God? As a believer, as a, as a Christian, where is it that you are failing to trust God as fully as you ought? Maybe it's in relationships with other people. Maybe it's in, in how you see other people. Maybe it's in... And idols that you hold up to put worth on yourself or comfort in yourself or security in yourself. What is it? Break the bad boy up. Give it to God and trust if he sees. Will you do what you say you will do? 
Now, maybe you come back in five years and I become homeless and I live on the streets in destitute poverty, eating once a month, you know, a stale bar out of a dumpster, and my kids have all run away and joined gypsies. And you go, oh, man, God doesn't always take care of people, does he? Well, you know what? If that's how it goes by trusting God, you better find out now than before it's too late. It doesn't happen that way. I'm not saying that you, well, we're not going to talk about the, I, I struggled with this for a number of years as a new believer. How can you become homeless if you're a Christian? Because doesn't God take care of your every need? You know, we talk about that at Real Conversations. I'm not saying there are all homeless people are going to hell by any means. But what I'm saying is this. You and I have got to get to a point, if we're going to experience the joy that Paul had in his relationship with God, the joy that God desires for us, we have got to get to a point where we are willing to say to God, it's all yours, I want to use it all for your glory, and I'm going to trust that you will care for me perfectly, that you will love me perfectly, and you will provide for all of my needs and give me every good and perfect gift. You know, how many people grow up in a home with a, with a good father? And they're afraid that, oh my gosh, if I do what my dad says, my life's going to stink, and I hope he feeds me tomorrow, and I hope he doesn't kick me out of the house, and I hope we don't live in the streets, and I hope I don't die of a disease because he won't take me to the doctor. Help me. Kids don't live like that. Grown-ups live like that with God. Stop. Try it this week. Take one thing, two things, or three things where you are failing to trust God the way you know you should. You know you're right with God. You know you're secure for all of eternity with God. But that joy, that comfort, that peace, that fruit of the Spirit, that power that, that, that is a, the potential power that dwells within us. Let's take it from the potential to the kinetic, right? From, from sitting there waiting to be manifested to being manifested. Where is it that we're not trusting? Start now. Because when the storms blow, well, see, then you don't freak out. In the middle of the, the relatively tranquil waters, trust God. There are consequences for all of us, for failure and faithfulness. You understand that? Paul could have not shared the message. Sailors could have jumped off the boat. They could have drowned in the sea. Paul could have shared the message and freaked out, and people afterwards might not have, wouldn't have the same credibility. Who knows the consequences? But I do know there are many to faithfulness and to failure, and they affect more than just us. We were talking a little bit about that this morning, even, Renee. As a parent, you want your kids to know that God loves them and God will care for them perfectly. Well, your kids look at you and they say, okay, let me see how that carries out in your life. Do you believe it? You see, because if you believe it, then there's a better likelihood that they'll believe it too, that they'll trust that you mean what you say and they'll see an example. There are other people we share the gospel with. You know, what we're calling them to is that a perfect, powerful, and holy God loves them, offers forgiveness to them, and then will care for them perfectly in this life. When they look at you, are they seeing someone who actually looks like they believe that? Or are they seeing someone who's freaking out all the way along through life? There's, there's credibility that comes in how we walk. Collectively as a church, we're called to care for one another, encourage one another, equip one another, pray for one another. Well, what happens if we're not doing that? Well, we're still a church. God still loves us, but, but we're not living up to the full potential that God calls us to. But it starts with individual faithfulness to trust God. Think about it this week. Where, where do you need to trust God? And the beauty is, it's not a matter of trying harder. It's a matter of seeing God more clearly for who he is. Someone give me a rational reason why you wouldn't trust God. Think about it. Why would you not trust God? Explain to me, based on my, my monetary idol issue, 
right? Why would I, what's the upside to trusting in money as opposed to God? Just one upside. Anyone, something, come on. What's the downside? I don't bring glory to God. I drive myself crazy. I'm committing idolatry. I'm failing to have the, the abundance of life that God calls me to. I'm, I'm suffocating the, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in my life and through my life. There are numerous negative downsides. But there's no risk, is there? The riskiest place you and I could stand is outside of the will of God. Think about that. The safest place for Paul was in the middle of a boat in a stormy sea. Why? Because God put him there, God wanted him there, and God was taking him to where he needed to go perfectly. That was the safest place for Paul to possibly be, right smack dab in the middle of the will of God. It wasn't the most comfortable. It wasn't the most wonderfully exciting. It wasn't the most pleasant at the moment. But God used that for his perfect purposes. And those experiences, those trials of many kind, developed in Paul a faith that was deep. That, that allowed him to know God well. Right, here's what I want to do today. We're going to take communion as a church family. And as we do, I, I want you to understand and reflect upon this. God could have just showed up in human history and said, Obey me or damn you to hell. You know, like, Whew, that's great. Go tell everybody. God says obey him or go to hell. That's most world religions. You know that? Do what God says or you're going to go to hell. And you'll never know until you die if you did good enough, so have fun. A lot of peace in that, isn't it? God revealed himself. He, he made himself known clearly through Christ. He lived a perfect life amongst us. He showed his love and grace and mercy for us throughout human history. You guys tracking with me here? God made himself known. He made himself knowable, and in that we see a God who loves us more than we can possibly imagine, who is far more powerful than you can possibly fathom, who will care for you perfectly beyond your wildest dreams. And what does he say? He says, I love you so much that I'm going to make a way for us to have this relationship that you were made for. I'm going to make a way so there is nothing you have to be afraid of. Perfect love casts out fear. God loves us perfectly. And I am going to show you through so many ways, culminating in the work of my son, how much I love you. I'm going to give you ample prophetic evidence to show you I will always do what I say I will do. I will give you historic evidence. I will die on a cross, taking your punishment upon myself and put my righteousness upon you so that we can have an eternal relationship so that I will care for you perfectly, so I will provide for all of your needs, and you can live the life you were made to live in relationship with me. That's what we're celebrating there. And what's, what's the, what do we need to do to have that? You don't need, think about this. You don't need to trust God to have it. If you get it, you'll trust God. It's not conditional. God says, if you will trust me, then I'll give this to you. Now, from our perspective, that's how it works. But realize, if you have any ability to desire to trust God, it is evidence of God working in your life to draw you to him. Do you see where I'm going there? It's not a matter, God doesn't say, change and I will bless you. God doesn't say to the sinner, stop sinning and come to me. God says, right where you are, right what you're doing, no matter what, I will forgive you. You will desire to turn, but your turning isn't what, what causes me to love you. Do you see that? And the more you understand that, you start to go, my word, I want to trust you. I want to turn from all sin to you because there's no fear in a relationship with you. There's perfect comfort and joy. I can love other people because you first love me. 
That's what we're celebrating. That's what Paul was sailing on a ship to go and tell people. So we're called to turn from sin and turn to God. And if you have a desire to do that, rejoice because God gave you that desire. You're accountable for it. You're judged on it. But understand, God gave you that desire. So as we take communion today, I want you to think about that. We're in a boat in the middle of a fallen world. And in this world, we're going to have trouble. We're going to be storm tossed. God allows us to be in that boat for a period of time. Why? I don't know. But I know where we're going. And it ain't Rome. It's heaven. And we're called to call people onto the boat so that they can be saved too. Because it's in the, in the security of the boat, a la a relationship with Christ, that no one will perish. Not a hair on your head will suffer. Oh, you'll be storm-tossed, and you might get a little seasick on the way, and you might get a little freaked out and not eat for 14 days and have some sleepless nights. But the boat will get you to land. That's the joy that we have. It's knowing that the God we worship said to a storm, be still, and the storm stopped. So if the storm waves knock, it's because he allows them to go. So what are you afraid of? Where, where do you have fear in your life? We all have fear. Don't throw it out there. It's awkward. We all have areas in our lives where we fear, don't we? Why? Simply because we're not trusting God fully. Now, no one will trust God fully in this life. But we'll trust him more and more. So as we take communion together, Let's not have a somber time focusing on the fact that Jesus died. Let's have a joyful time focusing on the fact that he didn't stay dead, on why he died, and what it means for us. You are, you are living a life as a Christian in the boat of salvation. And the party gets better in the boat the more fully we trust. Because when the world freaks out, we can keep smiling. You may be seasick and puking overboard, but you can still smile in this life because Jesus overcame this world. We get to experience that joy the more fully we trust. Let me pray. I invite you to come forward, and uh, then I'll close with a benediction. Father, I thank you for the fact that you, uh, you've given us this, this story, this real live historical event, to show us your power, your grace, your mercy, and your love, your faithfulness, that, that life for us is simply about trusting you. I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't trust it, that they would come to trust. And for those of us who do trust, that we would trust better. Not to be right with you, but because we're right with you. I thank you, God, that you don't see us in our screw-ups. You see us in the righteousness of Christ. But I also know that your desire for us is to live abundant life. And that abundant life is found in trust. Holy Spirit, I pray that you allow us to walk in greater obedience. I pray that you allow us to overcome our fears. I pray that you allow us to trust you more fully so that not only would our message to others have credibility, but you would be our all in all. I pray that we would understand more fully the joy Paul had when he understood life is uh, to die is gain. That this life isn't the end. This is the waiting room. This for the believer is as close we will ever experience hell yet for the non-believer the closest they will ever experience heaven. I pray we would enjoy this life. I pray we would not be storm-tossed very often. In fact, I pray for all of us smooth sailing. But I pray for faithfulness in the smooth sailing. I pray for boldness in the smooth sailing. And I pray we would grow to trust you more and more, both individually and collectively. God, may our lives be for your glory, not our own. And may we know the joy that comes from living for your glory as the only one worthy of praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.